0: Epiphany, the feeling of sudden insight or revelation, that aha moment when a revelation becomes strikingly clear, the reveal when you first learned that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Sorry. Yeah, it's public domain now, it's so old. In the church, Epiphany is a holiday, a, a feast day, January 6th, last Friday. And it's the day we celebrate the revealing of Jesus, God in the flesh, Savior of the world. Traditionally, the story of the Magi coming from the East to pay homage to Jesus is an epiphany text, and Joe just read that. In that story, it is revealed that Jesus is not only God in the flesh, not only the Savior, but God and Savior for Jews and Gentiles. He is the Savior of anyone who would come and follow him. As we've been kicking off new year to get the new year together as a church, we are going to be rooted in the Gospel of Luke for several months now. And the first few chapters of Luke's Gospel are full of epiphanies. Here's a few. The angels come and reveal to Zachariah and Elizabeth who their son will be, the forerunner of Jesus. The angels, of course, come to Mary and reveal who her son will be. Mary's song, the Magnificat, is an epiphany of who Jesus will become. Simeon and Anna share an epiphany about who Jesus is, and they foreshadow his rejection when Jesus is a youth and gets lost, his parents can't find him. They, they end up back at Jerusalem. They find him in the temple where he is debating. He's, he's going back and forth with the Jewish teachers. Why were you we looking for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? Aha! Epiphany of who Jesus is as God's son. And when Jesus is baptized, there is an epiphany in Luke's gospel. Where we hear, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father's voice with the son in the water and the spirit hovering overhead. Luke's genealogy ties Jesus not merely to Abraham like Matthew's genealogy does, but ties Jesus all the way back to Adam, the first son of God. Immediately after the genealogy in Luke, the next story is when Jesus is impelled by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil. He's tempted to doubt his father, and he's tempted to trust the evil one. But where the first Adam failed so long ago, Jesus stands firm, an epiphany to us that Jesus is the new Adam, a better Adam. Jesus not only shows us who God is, he shows us who we were made to be, sons and daughters of a good and gracious father. On this Epiphany Sunday... We're going to encounter Jesus in a sermon, not mine, not, at least not mine because it's me who's preaching it. The reason that we're going to encounter Jesus in a sermon is because I'm going to preach Jesus' sermon, the first sermon that he preached in the Gospel of Luke. Let me read it for you. Stand with me, please. I'll be reading Luke chapter 4. Verses 14 through 21. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Lord, may it be to us a fresh epiphany of who you are, this word that is fulfilled not only in the hearing of those first hearers, but fulfilled in our presence as well. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being the fulfillment of these passages. Open this word to us, Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Besides the time Jesus gets lost as a kid in Jerusalem and a few words at his baptism or in the wilderness where he's tempted... This is the first narrated episode of Jesus' life in Luke's gospel. Apparently, Jesus was in Capernaum doing ministry in such a way that people were talking about him in a positive way. News about him was beginning to spread. And in our text, Jesus has come into Galilee, and he was teaching in the synagogues. He was being praised by the people who heard him. And then he came into Nazareth, which is the town he was most likely brought up in. Luke 16 says that it was his custom to participate in the synagogue sorry Luke 4:16 it was his custom to participate in worship in the synagogue the local gathering of Jewish worshipers just like you know how I'm kind of like get my theology pet peeves right when I tell my kids, we're going to the church building today to gather with the church, like, right, remember the building's not the church, it's the people. Synagogue literally means the gathering of the people, so we know there's a synagogue down the street, but it's not really the building, it's the people that gather for worship there, that's the synagogue, okay? So, so Jesus would go to these gatherings as the synagogue, and, and he would worship, it was his custom. We don't frankly know a lot of details about small-town synagogue worship practices in the time Jesus was, was ministering. We know stuff from about 250 years A.D. and on, but we just know a few things. And here are some of those things. We, we know, for starters, that a synagogue had to be made up of at least ten men. So if we gathered here for worship as a synagogue and there are only nine dudes, sorry, apparently it wasn't official. <laughs> I, I don't know what they would do. I'm sure they would still pray together. But apparently to be an official synagogue gathering there had to be at least ten men there. And we know that, uh, that they would collectively recite the Shema together from Deuteronomy 6. In fact, we can recite it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. After the Shema was recited together, they would have readings from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then they would pray, sometimes with set prayers like the Tefillah, uh, or sometimes from the Psalms. Uh, and apparently sometimes extemporaneous prayers as well, just off the top of the worship leader's mind. This would be followed by readings from the prophets, and then after that there'd be a benediction. And in between the reading of the prophets and the benediction, there would be space for people to come forward and re- reflect on the Word of God that was read, or expound on the Word of God that was read, or, or preach, as we might call it today. Sometimes it was with a prepared message, and sometimes it was just someone who had a word that, about the Scripture that was read, and they wanted to share it. The worship leader, probably a rabbi or qualified layperson, wouldn't allow just anyone to expound on the Scripture. They would invite people of good reputation, that was the number one thing, and and someone with some training to come and share. So in Acts 13, for example, Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey together. They end up at a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, modern-day Syria. And here's what the text says in Acts 13. After reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, come say it. And so then Paul gets up and he preaches this really cool sermon. We'll get there in a couple years in Acts, but don't worry. Uh, it, but he talks about Jesus. He expounds on the scriptures that were read. Now, we know that Paul was a highly educated rabbi and Barnabas was a man of high reputation, but what about Jesus early on in his career? Even though Jesus is later on called a rabbi or a teacher by many people, we don't exactly know what kind of formal education he had. Scholar Kenneth Bailey uh, writes about a lay movement that sprung up in small towns like Nazareth uh, called the Habarim. Can you say Habarim? Habarim, it means, it's a Hebrew word that literally means a a gathering of friends, or it means the friends. And the Habarim, what they would do, they're just a, a group of people who would gather after their daily work, and they would study the scriptures together, and they would do theology together, and they would discuss how to keep these laws and how to interpret these passages. Whether or not Jesus was a Habarim or more formally trained, we don't know. But what is clear is that on this day, and in many other days when he would go to the synagogue, people would invite him to come and expound on the scriptures because of his reputation. Because the synagogue of officials must have trusted that he would say something profound. Three years ago, when I was on sabbatical, Corey and I got a time to, to go to Europe, and we spent a few days in Cambridge, uh, in England, and, and as a history nerd, it was hard just to drink it all in. I just felt like everywhere I looked was something really cool, and that some massive historical event had happened there. We saw the the tree, supposedly, that Sir Isaac Newton was sitting under that is, is so old now, it doesn't even produce apples, but apparently that was, that was the one. In fact, to this day, people still tie apples to this tree with strings so that it's always got something, but, you know, that, that's where Newton had this epiphany of, of the, the, the theory of, of gravity, you know. Uh, we're, we're punting down the river Cam, and we see all this commotion. We see Stephen Hawking himself is there doing this interview on a on a uh, uh, alumni weekend. It was so cool. It's like oh, there's Stephen Hawking in Cambridge. Um, we went to the pub where Francis Crick and James Watson uh, first drew their epiphany of the double helix form of DNA on a pub napkin, nonetheless. How quaint. Of course, it's on a pub napkin. It's so cool. Walking through Cambridge, I felt like any moment I might see a plaque or a picture or some kind of representation of a place where someone had a massive epiphany that changed the world. But what all these people have in common is that they were rooted deep in their craft. Newton, Hawking, Crick, Watson... um, they're all hard-working. They're all highly educated, deeply committed to their academic disciplines. Sometimes, I don't know, I think in popular culture, we think of an epiphany as something that falls out of the sky to random people. Oh, they're a prodigy. or That, that rarely happens. It usually it happens where someone is, uh, think of a jazz musician. Jazz musicians don't just like play around. They're, they're like phenomenal musicians, usually schooled in the basic foundations of musical theory, and then and only then do they improvise and make really amazing music. And the same thing is true with some of these scientists that I mentioned. They're masters of their craft, and then they innovate. So God decides to come to earth, put on flesh, dwell among us, be born in a manger, born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, he comes to save the world. And how does he present himself? How does he proclaim this good news? Not with lightning bolts and ideas dropping out of the sky. He goes to a synagogue and drawing upon scriptures that had been recited for centuries and centuries, Jesus is firmly rooted in the Scripture and in the tradition. And it's from this foundation, rooted in the story, that he will preach in a powerful way. He will present an epiphany to everyone who is willing to listen. Jesus gets up, and he's handed the Isaiah scroll, Uh, most likely a, a synagogue official had read from it moments earlier. Luke probably doesn't record everything Jesus has to say that day. Maybe Luke doesn't even have access to everything Jesus said that day. But what he does tell us, Jesus says, is enough. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. For the most part, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Many scholars call that part of Isaiah uh, one of the servant songs, pieces of poetry in Isaiah, where the speaker is not the prophet, but the mysterious servant of God, a Messiah or anointed Savior, Look again at the pronouns, or listen for them, rather. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to pre- preach the gospel to the, bo- to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and on it goes. The, the pronouns are all pointing to the speaker. The speaker here is more than a mere prophet. It's someone who is promised to come in the future, someone who accomplish what He proclaims. This is one of the passages people in that synagogue undoubtedly would have read frequently. They were in Roman occupied territory, much like the people in Isaiah's own day were in Babylonian captivity. Jesus' audience would have known this familiar text and hoped for its fulfillment one day. They were looking for some good news for the poor, because as they looked around Rome and their situation, they were the poor. Poor, in this setting, in this language, is not merely a lack of money or a lack of clothing. It means miserable, afflicted, in need without the ability to meet that need, whatever the need is. The poor in the Hebrew Scriptures were often the pious poor, the meek, the humble, who were oppressed because of the greed and selfishness of the powerful. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the humble meek, for they shall inherit the earth. His teachings are rooted in the promise that one day God would rescue the oppressed. Coming out of Isaiah. Passages like Isaiah 61, Isaiah 40 through 53. Oh, that's so good. In Luke's version of the Beatitudes, in chapter 6, we hear Jesus say, Blessed are the poor. Whereas Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Some people have made a big deal about that difference, claiming that Matthew spiritualizes Luke. But in reality, both these passages mean exactly the same thing. Blessed are the poor, those who are desperate for God's rescue, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's relational, whatever it is, that word poor encompasses all that we lack as human beings. Jesus quotes Isaiah saying, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. That is, captives from oppression, but also captives from sin. Captives from the results of years of bad choices that we may have made ourselves. Captives of years of bad choices made by other evil people who have screwed up our lives. Whether it's parents, friends, random acts of violence, people who make policy that's really bad for us, all of this stuff captives to debt, captives to chronic illness, captives to addiction, captives to warped ways of living and viewing the world. And he promises recovery of sight to the blind, physical blindness, we see Jesus doing that in the scriptures, uh, but more importantly, spiritual blindness, the inability to see clearly the will of God, a clearing of the haze and distortion that comes from our own kind of fallen perspective. I don't see the world clearly. Freedom from our own skewed view of reality that the world feeds us. This is all packed into that Isaiah 61 passage that Jesus is reading. He talks about freedom for the oppressed and the favorable year of the Lord. That is the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25. According to the scriptures, the year of the Lord's favor was to happen every 49th of the 50th year. Uh, all slaves were to be set free. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm glad we don't have slavery right now, but can you imagine even in that system? All slaves are set free. All debts canceled. Now, that we can really imagine. All debts canceled. If you're one who has some debt, cha-ching. If you're one who has the lean on some debt, like, oh, okay. <laughs> Land returned to its original owner. That'd be tough in America to figure out who the original owner of some of these places are. Wars and feuds, family feuds, cultural feuds would end. And the land was to lie fallow so it could rejuvenate, the soil be renewed. It was such a complex and transformative concept that there is no evidence that Israel ever did this level of jubilee in its history. And by the time Jesus preached it in the first century context, people believed that it couldn't happen until the day of the Lord, the day that God became king, the day that the, uh, the world would receive God in His kingdom in his fullness. On the surface then, from our perspective, frankly, Jesus' sermon seems kind of boring. I'm sure mine seems worse because I'm just reading his. So Jesus gets a chance to preach at the local synagogue. Luke records this thing for us, and he basically quotes a dead prophet. A few lines, and then he sits down. It was a message of hope, yeah, but was it all that special? Uh, I can imagine other people standing up and saying the same thing the week earlier at synagogue. The Son of God gets behind the pulpit, and he quotes Scripture but you know it's coming, don't you? There's more beneath the surface. There always is, right? There's always more beneath the surface, more than we have time for in this sermon, so don't worry, I won't go too long, but I want to point out a couple things. First, I said that Jesus was quoting Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he was for the most part, but he made a few special modifications of his own one of those modifications was slipping a part of Isaiah 58 6 into this passage. And it says, to set those free who are oppressed. Now, why is that a big deal? Let me try and break it down. Because unlike Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58 wasn't very good news for most of Israel. In that chapter, Israel had been neglecting the poor. They had been ignoring the needy. They had caused a rift in their fellowship by excluding and oppressing certain groups and types of people. So they were complaining about not hearing God. They're like, I don't get it. Why aren't I hearing God? I mean, we're doing all the right stuff. We're declaring fasts and we're we're going to synagogue every week. And God, why don't you hear us? And they're yelling out to him. Meanwhile, they're doing all the shady business with real people, but they're doing all the religious stuff. God, I'm fasting. Why don't you hear me? And Isaiah uh, 58 says this. God confronts them through the prophet, and he says, Is this not the fast which I choose for you? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide the bread, your bread, with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to clothe them and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Isn't that the kind of fasting I desire, says the Lord to Israel? So he's like really getting on their case here. The people are doing all these religious things, but they're neglecting the heart of God to care for his children. So God comes back to them later on in that passage and says, if you stop neg- neglecting my people, if you start acting with compassion, then I'll answer you. Listen to this. If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then our light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you. This was a curious thing for Jesus to insert in the middle of a quote from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 especially since Israel had not ever lived up to the expectations of Isaiah 58. No human culture has. Jesus' hearers would have loved him quoting Isaiah 61. That was good news. But Isaiah 58 was a blaring reminder that they had failed and continued to fail. So what is Jesus doing? How is this a good sermon, Jesus? And the answer comes right after he's done preaching he closes the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant he sits down all of the eyes of the synagogue are fixed on him what did he just do there isaiah 61 with a little 58 i don't get it and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing it's an amazing epiphany See, the congregation expected that Jesus had simply gone up to preach, and when he preached the good news of God, they likely nodded pretty much in agreement, but no one expected that Jesus wasn't just the preacher of good news, but that he is the good news. It wasn't so much that Jesus preached an epiphany, it is that he, the preacher, is the epiphany. Jesus wasn't merely preaching good news. He was preaching that he was fulfilling that good news. And he didn't quote Isaiah 58 to rub salt into people's failures. He was saying, I have fulfilled the ethical law for you. You are far from God because you are sinful and selfish, but me, in me, God has come near you were never going to get close to him on your own. So I'm telling you today that God has come near, that today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In the weeks to come as we journey through Luke's gospel together, there's going to be lots of passages that we're going to bump up against. Hard ones. Luke talks a lot about money, more, than, more about money than any other pas- uh, gospel. He's going to talk about ethics. We're going to be confronted with lots of application and ways that we get to change our lives. But this week, our text doesn't leave us with three action steps or two ways to get closer to God. This week, our text is news, not advice. It's an epiphany. It says, here's who Jesus is. I'm not asking you to do anything. Just look the exegete in me, sees Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. The fulfillment of the good news, part of that good news being covering my sin failure from Isaiah 58. He ushers in the good news of God's salvation for humanity, and that is definitely the heart of this passage. That's what the exegete reads out of that text. But the spiritual theologian in me sees something different. Something basic, something implicit, not explicit. It's not in Jesus' words. It's not in what he says. It's in what he doesn't say. It's in his demeanor, his, his way. Of all the scriptures he could have chosen to preach on, Jesus chooses to preach on this passage. Would Jesus have been wrong as God in the flesh to simply have his sermon call people to a higher moral standard? Of course not. That's fully within his rights. Would Jesus have been out of line as the incarnate creator of the universe to speak out against the faithlessness and sinfulness of the world? Would he be unjust for bringing punishment for our sin at his inauguration speech? It would be well within his authority to do all those things. And you know what? Something more. It would still be fair for him to do all these things. And yet, he chooses to present good news grace, deliverance, forgiveness, favor. And what that shows me, and I hope you see clearly, is that that is the default stance of God it's love, it's mercy. And that is a life-changing epiphany. That he's not up there with his arms crossed, wagging his finger, waiting for you to screw up. He knows that, and he's done something about it. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for this revelation, this epiphany of your way, your demeanor. We often focus on what you've done, and, and we're thankful, so thankful that you have canceled our, our sin and our, our, paid our debts and all of those, those great things of the atonement. But thank you for the way that this passage also reveals who you are. That you are, by default, loving and gracious. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray for myself to be able to receive more deeply your love for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break through even now as we receive this word, that you would break through those callous spots in our hearts, those broken spots that have have crusted over with scar tissue because of, of wounds that we've received, because of horrible ways that we view ourselves as being unworthy, Jesus, you did so much to show your love for us, to rescue us. I know that this is something that you long to do, that you love to do, so would you penetrate those, those hard parts in our, our hearts, Lord? Would you penetrate cynical minds? Would you seek us where we're hiding in dark places, trying to avoid truth and light? And help us to see how good and gracious that homecoming in Christ can be. Amen.